in New York City. I was in New York City last week. And um, what were you doing we, in New York City? We were uh, Dan and I from, were looking to the very first steps towards opening a New York office for Unbound. <gasps> so it's very exciting. Wow. So good it's good book. It's, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you're funny you should mention that. So uh, it also coincided with the Book Expo, um, which is in a massive place called the Javits Centre, which is uh, on the Hudson River. Uh, I mean, it's the biggest venue I've ever seen for a book trade yeah. event. And in fact, that was rather nice. It was, it was the only time I've been to a book trade event where it was, there was a lot of space between the stands. You, know, you, you could breathe. Or you could hide and not talk to people. <laughs> but I, uh, I had one, I had one m- moment which I thought I should share. I mean, amongst the many great, we had fantastic. We had an afternoon at Kickstarter, and we had hung out with Morgan Etrigan and great people, publishing wow. people, new mm-hmm. publishing people. But uh, the cool moment was going to the New York Review of Books Classics stand, and Sarah Kramer coming up to me and saying, it's my favourite podcast in all the world, can I just say thank you <laughs> if you want any of these books uh, and I said obviously I was a bit flattered, a bit embarrassed to be honest uh, being English, uh, but very pleased and it's, um, anyway, it's very sweet so, um, that's she, amazing it was just quite, it was a bit surreal standing in the middle of a Javits Centre surrounded by I mean, I'd just seen James Patterson doing a signing, so to wander up and then to be, um, to be recognised for I just could read. She said, "I was just reading your badge. I couldn't believe it was you." Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> in, all I, my, I, in all my ice cream Sunday <laughs> glory. <laughs> well, so that was very successful and uh, and exciting. So we'll be going back for sure. But uh, great, it's just such a great city. And I have to say, reading reading Zivon's book. We should definitely extend our world tour of uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, backlisted live venues to somewhere in New York. <laughs> I mean, it seems foolish not to. Very foolish. Very foolish. Um, live in live NYC. In NYC. Um, yes, that was great. And then I was back to Hay. I went to Hay one weekend, went to New York, came back to Hay. And you've been, meanwhile, in Stoke. I was at North London's most popular literary festival, the uh, Stoke Newton Literary Festival last weekend, as was our guest, Richard. You were, you were there, weren't you? Yes, happy time. You had a packed house, because I was there and I saw that packed house. Yeah, we were talking about politics and whether it's stranger than fiction, so the material was you know, ample. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting session. And I went to see Stuart Evers and Maggie G do a, a session about protest that our former guest, Kit Duvall, was supposed to be attending as well and couldn't get there because right. of the disruption after was the, this the, the London the Bridge Rob events. Page, uh, book on protest. That's right, yeah. yeah. The, I saw an event, a really good event in Hay on that very theme with... Yeah, um, this was really good. ...with uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce and Courtney New- Newman, which was very good. I did, a, I did a session of this thing I've done at Stone Newton before called Author Confidential where I had a really nice panel of authors together and I asked them to talk about what it's like to be an author at the sharp end. And I have to say, the thing that resonated most with the audience was... Uh, I was talking about how um, I don't really understand the thing. I mean, I really love Twitter, as you will realise, and I, I'm, I'm on it a lot, and I find it very funny. But I also find it infuriating at times. And I was, uh, I was saying to the audience, the thing I hate on Twitter more than anything else is where if you say, you know... Um, oh, i tell you what I really like. Uh, um, you know, I really like Cat Stevens. <laughs> and I guarantee someone will go, oh, Cat Stevens is shit, mate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and I was talking about the, the worst time this ever happened to me, and the thing that was a, is a line in the sand. I was at a hotel uh, on the Isle of Man, and I was feeling quite homesick, 
and I came down for breakfast. It was a nice full English breakfast, full Douglas <laughs> breakfast. And I, with my breakfast, some fried bread came. And so I ate some fried bread. I thought, this is nice. I haven't had fried bread like this since I was a kid. And so full of happiness and homesickness, I tweeted. It's not great content, I give you. I tweeted, oh, I'm eating some fried bread and it's really nice. And three people went, oh, fried bread's shit, mate. <laughs> right? People can't help themselves. It's so... So I try, never to, I try never to do that. If you don't like something, Matt, I think it's often better to just keep quiet about it, don't you? Do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which... <laughs> we should start, really. Do you see that tweet that's going around with the picture from Zulu? Have you seen that? Hot takes, sir. Thousands of them. <laughs> uh, OK. Should we start? Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. My name's John Richardson and I publish books at Unbound the website which brings authors and readers together to create something special. Uh, and I'm Andy Miller, and I write books, uh, including a book about the kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society, which I mention today, because in keeping with our, our already theme of me having a bee in my bonnet about things people do on Twitter, I saw somebody this week uh, describe the kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society as, quote, well Brexit. And if I, <laughs> if I see anyone else do that, I will explain the kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society to them until they are dead. Ha! Happily, right? So that's me. John. Well, man, you join us in a seven-story suite in the Riot House on Sunset Boulevard where Andy has just chucked the TV off the balcony into the swimming pool <laughs> because today we're discussing, um, apologies to our American listeners, we're discussing I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, The Dirty Life and Times of Warren Zevon, edited by Crystal Zevon. And this is, we're talking about that book, but we're also talking about other books this time because this is a, an oral histories or an oral biographies special edition of Backlisted. We felt confident that probably no other podcast would have a, an oral history special edition, but here we are to do it. So we're talking about uh, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead uh, by Crystal Zevon. We're also going to be talking about a few other uh, oral histories or oral biographies. And with us today to talk about that subject, this book in particular, and oral histories in general is the author and editor Richard T. Kelly. Hello, Richard. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, he's a bluff man, as you'll, as you'll discover, <laughs> listeners. Speakers of mine. Speakers of mine. display. I edit other people's words, he says, <laughs> but rarely use my own. Uh, Richard's novels include Crusaders, The Possessions of Dr. Forrest, and The Knives. And he has also written and edited a couple of oral histories stroke oral biographies himself on Alan Clark, the film director Alan Clark, mm. who directed Scum and Pender's Fen yeah. and Made in Britain and Rita Sue and Bob Two. Rita Sue and Bob Two. And also did your you, biography of Sean Penn. Is that an oral history? It is. It, it is, is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're going to be talking a little bit to Richard about about how you go about putting one of these books together. But we should also say in a sense, Richard is the ultimate backlisted guest because he used to run Faber Finds. Faber Finds is the part of Faber devoted to finding... Giving new life to old books. Giving new life to exactly old books, right. exactly right, yeah. And so several of the books that we've covered here on Backlisted have been available for us to read, thanks to Richard's efforts at Faber Finds. Bridget Brophy was one that, that sprang Yeah, the Snowball mind. and that amazing Emmerich Pressburger yeah. ah, novel. Glad you like that. Yeah. That's a wonderful book. How did that? How did you? How did that come to be? Well, I have, I have the good fortune of uh, the glass pearls. That's called, cool, isn't it? Yes, glass pearls. Uh, uh, Mr. Pressburger's grandson, uh, Kevin MacDonald, the Oscar-winning film director, ah. is a pal of mine, and 
he, having liked what Faber Fines was up to, put, sent the book my way. I mean, I think, to be honest, he, he was hoping just uh, something could be done with it because Pressburger wrote two novels, both of which had fallen into the, the cracks yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, but this one was obviously great, and I said, oh, I'd love to do this in Faber Fines, if you don't mind. So that's what we're doing today, and normally we would do the what we've been, been reading this week, but we thought it would, be, it would be better if we both talked about, before we'd gone on to the Zevon book, it, that we talked a little bit about some of our favourite oral histories or writers who've put those books together. Jo- so, John, what oral histories have you been reading over the last 30 years? Uh, well, the one that every, I think everybody comes back to. I mean, I, I, we, we could talk... I'm a huge fan of Studs Terkel, amazing impresario and journalist, and his book on the Great War was a classic. I mean, he kind of initiated the genre, that's I think, the, yes, started that's the, the genre. I've got a list of them here. The Good War. Yeah, Good War. Was, oral History of World War II, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. I think it started as an academic discipline, didn't it, really, Richard? People going out and, and collecting... Sort of talking to, yeah, you think about talk, preserving kind of uh, the p- people who were going to die, and as, as a way of, of, of getting the history of ordinary people. Yeah, and if you think about what mass observation were yeah. up to in, in, in Britain after the war, uh, during, during the war, uh, the, the, the academic sociological interest it was very obvious. But you get you get the authenticity of the voice, and then you, I mean, I guess the the thing that makes them interesting is that they're almost like. They're kind of plotted as dramas, so you, you can yeah, tell. Yeah, we should say, if anybody doesn't know, an oral history is... Uh, it's not the nicest edited, term, is an it? An edited collection of interview material yeah, where uh, the protagonists tell uh, their own story. In their, mostly in their own yeah. words. And, yeah. I, and the one that I go back to, and I think a lot of people uh, go back to as a, as a sort of classic of the genre, is Edie um, by Gene Stein, which is the life of Edie Sedgwick. Edie, an American biography. An American biography, and it is... It is. It's much more than just somebody's life. I mean, it's the history of her family. It's the history of a kind of. It's the book. I think Mailer called it the book about the sixties that we always wanted somebody to write. It's a massive. I mean, if ever there was a kind of, uh, you know, that that sort of idea of something that is properly symphonic, you know, with all these different kind of um, ranges, and you know, you've got Truman Capote, you've got. Uh, on one side, you've got family members, you've got Warhol, mm. you've got Patti Smith, you've got people who knew her, her members of her family, you've got people who were historians of the period. It's, it's just, and it, 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 you know, again, cliche, it is a page turner because the story is, and we'll, this is an interesting thing which you often find in, in oral histories, they become emblematic. I mean, it's almost like a, a sort of a Greek tragedy, the way with the chorus and the voices off. And the, the one voice that kind of isn't there, in a way, is, is, is hers. It's a sort of a... I, I remember, I bought a copy of <clears throat> Easy from, uh, in the, uh, yeah, must be mid-80s, from, I want to say, Claude Gill. If you remember Claude Gill? Yeah, I do. In Charing Cross Road, uh, because I was just discovering the Velvet Underground. So I, I had Victor Bocracy's oral history of the Velvet Underground uptight, and here was this book about Edie Sedgwick, so I bought it. I must have read Edie about four or five times yeah, in the space of a couple of years. It's so... It, it's totally compelling, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I, I just was rereading it again book. at the weekend, and, and, um, and I, what I find is every time I go back, I found that the early stuff about the family, which I sort of skipped over to get to the Warhol bits... Reading it sort of 20 years later, I'm much more interested in that. <laughs> you think that what... So Jean Stein herself was, was a... I mean, she did a number of these. She did a sort of similar biography of uh, Robert Kennedy. And we should probably cite that, I mean, uh, 
did them with George Plimpton, who, yeah. who, who was her, her yeah. editor at Paris. So she, sta- yeah, she started as an editor. She's also, I discovered, uh, as you do, grazing Wikipedia, that she worked as Ilya Kazan's assistant uh, on when he was making uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah. So she's, I mean, interesting woman. And the most, I mean, the, that, that sort of Plimpton generation, Paris Review... They publish American Journey, which is the book about Robert Kennedy in 1970, and then they publish Edie in 1982, and Edie is, becomes a bestseller. Yeah. I, mean, I think probably to everybody's surprise... And, and sort of, re, in a funny kind of way, as if, if I remember it correctly at the time, it sort of, for a whole generation of us, it, it reinvested the whole Warhol myth yeah. in the 60s and the Velvets. I think a lot of people who... Whereas that had maybe kind of dipped during the, as the 70s went on and punk erupted by... Early 80s, suddenly this book came out, and it was the book that all, you know, Bowie fans, everybody who. It, um, I don't know, was it on his list? I bet it was, wasn't it? It must have been mm. on his list. And she, anyway, it. so, and also last year she published a book called West of Eden, which is about the founding, the six founding families of Hollywood, which our, our guest on the last episode, Niving of was raving to me about when I mentioned that we were. We're going to be doing doing this. So she's published these two or three big books, which sort of, I've got a definition here. Uh, really, there's a really good article which we tweeted a link to by Gillian uh, McCain and Legs McNeil, author of the brilliant oral history of U.S. punk. Please kill me. Which um, is another <coughs> classic of indeed. Genre. And they they quote Gene uh, Stein's definition here of what she and Plimpton were trying to do. She used the term oral narrative, which also isn't great, is it? But she used well, it. Oral's the problematic word. Oral narrative. Oral, <laughs> oral history has been largely thought of as the collecting of interview transcripts for storage in archives in order to provide historians yeah. with research material. Somewhat less common is the use of interview transcripts as a literary form in which the raw transcripts are edited, arranged, and allowed to stand for themselves without the intervention by the historian. So that's what we're talking about. And we should ask Richard, which is the most fun bit of putting together an oral narrative? Is it the interviewing, the accumulating, the editing, or the having finished? Well, uh, the worst part is the transcribing you know, by a million miles, but every writer knows that. Yeah. Uh, the interviewing, all, all, all being well, is great fun. Sometimes it's torture. But you, 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 if you do one of these, you're committed to, to... You have to talk to everybody. So you can't pick and choose. you just got to... Uh, yeah, the, the subject, family, friends, people they, they loved, people they hated, you know, you, the, the concentric circles just keep going around. So, so you have some fun there and some, some it's a bit, a bit trickier. Uh, the, 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 the satisfying part of it, the part that feels like writing, is, is the crafting of it. Um, uh, I mean, and, and to me, the heart of the matter, uh, why, why the form uh, becomes so good at the point when it becomes good with, with Plimpton and, and Gene Steen, uh, is its relation to uh, the American uh, genius of, of the new journalism in that period, okay, the, yeah. the, the, the era of Wolf and Mailer and Gay Taliza, and applying uh, fictional uh, qualities to, to non-fictional projects. I, mean, I, I was looking the other day at uh, Tom Wolfe's original manifesto of the new journalism, in which he, he obviously, in his, in his uh, not backward coming forward way, tried to show what, what new journalism should do, and, and I think it, it bears very close relation to what oral history should do, what its, what its strength should be. Uh, the dramatic quality of, of, of a scenes upon scenes, where the, where the backstory is, is, isn't really there, but it has to have forward momentum. Uh, you need dialogue, you know, qual- the, the, the spoken word in yeah, dynamic yeah. form, and you need something interesting going on with point of view. 
And the great thing about oral history is its form allows you to say, I don't know what the truth is. I can put together two contradictory versions on the page together and you go and decide. And if, when you are looking for models, I mean, one of the things that seems that the good ones do is that they have that, they have that sort of vernacular intimacy, but it's, you know, they're not... Obviously, you know, all the pauses and the ums and the ahs and the repetitions are taken out. Mm. When you were looking at your subjects, did you have models that you... That you or did you, is, is it more a question of finding the, the right tone for the, for the subject? Oh, I mean, you certainly want to make everyone speak, and you, and you want to be a sort of dramatist that way, so the voices rub against each other. Yeah. It's a bit like being a, 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 a writing plays or screenplays, or, or, on, or in, in, in novels too. Each character has to have their own mm. voice. Mm. To differentiate them, they should, they should become recognisable to the reader that way. So you have to have some kind of ear for speech patterns. You, obviously, you're, you're getting rid of all those ums and ahs and verbatim transcript nonsense. But you're, you're presenting a plausible version of how they spoke. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that. For me, one of the things that I really love about these books is that Rashomon element of getting the same story from different yeah, points yeah, of yeah. view. And in fact, John, we should also say that you published probably the best-selling oral history, oral narrative of the last, however, 20, 30 years. I'd right? the most expensive best-selling which was the Beatles anthology. Well, the, the, the Beatles anthology um, really has that, makes a virtue of that Rashomon thing, which is because they can't remember and disagree. Well, they well, make a virtue of constantly saying, no, also, I think one, remember one this. Them, you know? I mean, this is an interesting thing, because, I mean, you know, you've, you've purchased some two of people who are still alive. Edie was dead when... when yeah, well, Alan oh, Clark was dead. Uh, was he? And so, yeah, so and that was, was very okay. much gathered in, in memoriam. But, but Sean Penn was very much alive and, 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 and is a participant in the books. Uh, sure, as is, bizarrely, John Lennon in the Beatles anthology. It was a brilliant bit of work. They took uh, largely Rolling Stone interviews and some, some, of, the, some of the interviews that, that weren't as familiar and they, uh, it was edited into, into the text. But the, new, the, rest of it was, um, the rest of it was definitely... Interviews, long interviews with the three surviving Beatles. Yeah. So that so the, the thing about it was the this is the, the the first thing is when I it was the the theatre of the whole thing was amazing. It was Frankfurt Book Fair and you had to sign an NDA and you had to go into a room and you ha- you were left with it precisely half an hour to go through, and it was uh, incredibly moving because it was a, I mean it. It's a great. We should say it's a great book. And I have no. A great I have book. nothing to say about the content because the content was, un, you know, there was no, we had, could add or subtract nothing from it. It was a, you were basically given the chance to look at it, and then you had to come back and respond and say how you how you might want to publish it, which amazingly, given that everybody was looking at it at the time, we we um, we won the auction. The, the amazing thing about that book is very very familiar people seen in an unfamiliar light and there are stories in there that, mm-hmm. that made that were so com- the idea that they they book out the ho- they book out a whole floor of the hotel for them and the four of them would all end up in one or other of their bathrooms just sort of you know hanging out there's four working class boys from liverpool not really wanting a whole ho- hotel suite there were just lots of lovely it's the detail and i think that's the thing about the form is that people's memories and what people choose to say about somebody that book captures better than any other book the niggly relationship between Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Yeah. Right. And there are several p- times where George Harrison very dryly Flatly will say, Paul, where Paul's always been a year and a half older than me. Yeah. Right. Or, or there's a brilliant bit where they're talking about Dylan and they say about, with Dylan, who will come up when we talk about Zeeland as well, they say about Dylan, McCartney says, you know, 
yeah, we're not telling you he was our idol, you know. And George says, well, he wasn't our idol. You know, we liked him. <laughs> you know, they're just and that the, and kind that, of... that thing of, of Paul doing the... And, you know, people don't realise, I was the one that uh, introduced them all to avant-garde art. It wasn't John, it was me. I was the one who... And, you know, it's, well, I think I told you the story, which is my favourite story. The thing of the book was working with Neil Aspinall was, was one of the great experts. Who, who had been the Beatles' roadie and roadie. was the, now he, the head of Apple. Head, that head of Apple, amazing. I mean, he was, you know, again, he'd grown up on the, the, the streets, as it were, with them. And the only person who'd been through... And, and he told me very early, he said, there's no point asking me, John, about my book. It'll never see the light of day. I've promised I've promised him. And he said, that's a promise I'll keep till the day. And he, so he did. He's, he's dead now, sadly. But he was like Yoda. It was like, so he was full of these kind of, you know, if you can see the bandwagon, you've already missed it, you know, that kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and I, when we did a marketing plan, he threw it in the bin. It's pretty, looked at it 10 minutes, threw it in the bin. He said, I said, well, what, Neil, what are you doing? He said, we're, we're the Beatles. He said, we always go to number one. He said, we don't... But then later on, it was, I learned a huge amount, sitting at the... When we won the Nibby for Illustrated Book of the Year, sitting at the table, and I said, can you explain to me Paul's poetry book, which um, published by Faber? And he said, well, what do you want me to explain? I said, well, there's a few, you know, perfectly nice poems at the front, and then the rest are Beatles lyrics. And he said, yes. He said, well, Angie, question. I said, well, you know, we, do, we all know the Beatles lyrics. We don't particularly need them gathered into it to trick out a book of poetry. And he said, well, why do you think Paul would want to do that? And I said, I have no idea. He said, well, who wrote the Beatles songs? And I said, well, Lennon and McCartney. Oh, shit. You mean, <laughs> welcome to my world, John. Welcome to my world. <laughs> uh, it's just priceless, but there you go. Yeah, um, just letting everybody know these were mine. So going back to, is it Gene, is it Gene Stein or Steve? I've been saying it wrong all the years. I couldn't tell you myself. I'm going to stick to Gene Stein. Yeah. Well, so Gene Stein died uh, about a month ago. Yeah. At the age of um, 83. Um, but the, so, that, so Edie, going back to Edie, the thing about Edie, which I, I think is significant, as you were saying, John, is there's sort of, it, it helps create that 80s interest in the Velvet Underground and in the factory and all those things. But I also think because it was a bestseller and because it talked about um, some pop subjects, but some historically interesting subjects in that way. It was a very influential book on how people came to write about film and popular music and other popular forms. The oral history form it, it, it almost often takes the, the standard. I mean, yeah. when we did a book on punk that wasn't Legs McNeil, but the Legs McNeil book would come out shortly before we did a, a, a big illustrated book on punk, we did the same thing, went and interviewed lots of people. We did a, a book here that we funded on 80s club culture. I mean, I think it becomes almost like the standard. If you want to take a, a bit of cultural history and to make it kind of authentic, you go and talk to the people who well, are there. Well, we should, like, we should mention a couple of books we should mention. We should definitely mention Days in the Life by our former yeah, guest, Jonathan Green, which absolutely. is a magnificent book about 1960s London and the counterculture. And we should also mention Daniel Rachel's book that came out last year, Walls Come Tumbling Down, uh, which has just won the Pandaren Music Prize which I've got, I haven't read, but I have a copy of, which I've try, been trying not to read, to be honest with you, because I know that I'll get sucked into it straight away, which is a book about rock against racism and about political pop in the 80s. It does seem to be, it seems like, as we were saying earlier, it's a really good form to capture people who can talk and have something to say. Yeah. 
I mean, you, you, the subject matter, the, the personality at the heart of it has to be a lively individual. You know, they have to inspire storytelling, uh, where everybody you meet will go, yeah, I've got some stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, can I, I'd like to put a word in for the, the one that inspired me to do mine, um, which is uh, Mailer, His Life and Times by Peter Manso. Mm, Vast, yeah. door-stopping thing. Uh, but, a, you know, a great American life and a great American artist, and the thing is, is massed in precisely the way we've been talking about. You, you, one of the things I was thinking about is what I love about the, the form is you don't get the, you know, kind of idle psychologising that a lot of biographers, if, which seems to me to be, I think, what... <laughs> <laughs> or do you? Right, here's what you get. I mean, the, the, these books are, are, are authored, you know, and this is the other new journalism trick. The, 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 the author, so they look like they're history, yeah. but in fact they're, they're you, you arrange, prosecuting an agenda. Yeah, you arrange the pieces. I mean, I mean... I, the way I do the books is I, I, I skeletally map them out and then I, I, I attach the, the quotes to, to serve the, the structure. But I'm not yeah, alone, no, that's, I'm not alone no, of course. in that. It's no, not course. some kind of neutral no. practice. Um, no, well, that, it's the thing that Gillian, yeah. Gillian McCain and Legs McNeil refer to it. There's a brilliant, again, I, I commend this to everyone listening. There's six, they give you six rules of putting one of these books together. And I think the second or third one is it's not writing, it's carving. Yes. You know, you're, it's, which it might be why we all like them, because there is an editorial element yeah. to it. It's, you know. it's closer to documentary filmmaking in the most forms of writing. You, 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 your rushes are your material, and so you're stuck with that, but, uh, like, like the, the piece of marble determines the sculpture. It's a really good point, but when we come on to the Zevon later, I watched the VH1 documentary. That mm, was made same here. And you, you realise what a thin, gruel most documentary filmmaking is in comparison to the book. Yeah. It's it's interesting uh, it, that you just get so much more detail and so a much a much more complex. Uh, well, uh, we're, we're, so we're, I know. I just before we, I can, this and, is. He's got a, a, another brilliant. Um, I, I'm, my my favourite, choice, and that's just my favourite oral history. But it's one of my favourite books, bar none. It's a book that was published. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna show this to the gentleman at the other side of the table. <laughs> you could. I was very, very bad. There's a picture of Jimmy Savile saying, I was very, very bad. And this was, this was published in 1994 or 5, 6. So this is a book called The Wrestling by Simon Garfield. Simon Garfield has gone on to write all sorts of interesting and wonderful books. Maps, Time, his new book yeah. out on Time. And um, this is a book about British wrestling <laughs> from the early 70s that I used to watch with <laughs> Mick my McManus. dad. Mick McManus. Jackie Palo. Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, Adrian Street, and on the front cover of this book, Kendo Nagasaki, Kendo Nagasaki. right? <laughs> I guarantee you can open this book at any page and some superb anecdote spills out, right? <laughs> and I thought, um, I, just, I will just read you two very tiny things. Then actually, within, Simon Garfield puts himself in as a character in this book and gives himself the first words. So chapter one, that fat bastard I could kill him, said Jackie Pallow, is the name of the <laughs> chapter, right? <laughs> Simon Garfield. In August 1995, more than 150 professional wrestlers gathered at a pub in Greenwich to talk about how things used to be, a reunion. They looked all right, apart from the ears. <laughs> but their walking was terrible. And when they got up to order a drink, you saw that many had bad limps or ruined backs. It was like a reunion of people with hip replacements. 
A friend of mine took a group photograph. We positioned some of them outside the pub in several rows, with some kneeling at the front, and Mick McManus looking like the team captain, and when we finished, a couple of them had to be hoisted to their feet because their knee joints had shattered. It was Wayne Bridges' pub. Wayne's other name was Bill. People had come down from Scotland to attend, and it turned into the biggest single gathering of wrestlers there had ever been. I was told that whenever wrestlers get together, they just sit around and lie to each other. But it... But it wasn't all like that, <laughs> right? So that, that was straight away, right? That is, that's so good, right? Now, I, I, I interviewed Simon about this book. I, it's still in print. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's so funny, this book, and so touching in terms of these guys who were so famous yeah, in Britain huge. in the 60s and 70s and then vanished to, into nothing. World of Sport, 4 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my dad and I used to, my dad and da, I used da, to watch da, the wrestling. Dickie Davis. The fact that it's even called Jumpers The Wrestling. Guys. Because yeah. everyone used to say, you're going to watch The wrestling. wrestling. It's not wrestling. You're going to watch The Wrestling, right? And then I found... So I was talking to... I interviewed Simon about... I was supposed to be an interview about his favourite books, but it ended up being an interview about my favourite book. <laughs> I, I got, just grilled him for 20 minutes. because there was so, but, 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 but going into what we were talking about, because I was so interested about how he had got certain interviewees to say certain things at certain points or was it all an editorial sleight of hand and the answer is is wrestling fixed yes it's fixed but it also hurts you know it's real but it's not real right it's same like any book you know it's 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 a, a simulacrum of something real which is totally artificial so here is simon like all of art yeah well here is the beautiful lie here is simon here is simon saying Looking back a few years later about the writing of the book, and Richard, I think this will probably chime with, with you. He says, I had a terrific time writing the wrestling. I attended a wrestler's reunion and visited many wrestlers old and new in their homes. The good news was many of them still hated each other. Being both great athletes and actors, they have many fine stories to tell. For a while, I had visions for an exciting ending for the book. One which would involve me climbing into the ring and going a few browsing rounds with a pro. I worked out a bit at the local gym where I had some difficulty with the forward roll. I practiced saying, not the ears, and ask him, ref. But no one seemed overly impressed. I asked Jackie Pallow what I would need to become a good fighter, and he said, a complete change of DNA. (laughs) So, So I chickened out, fearing that I would have ended up in a hospital if not dead. The book closes instead with a nice quote from the painter Peter Blake, Peter Blake, who, who, who is part of a famous arena documentary about Kendo Nagasaki, who concluded that we have lost something singularly British, but perhaps we shouldn't regret its passing. It had its day, and it was wonderful. Oh, and um, So that book is, is still, is still uh, for me, that's still, I think, my favourite, because I love it when you read a book, and it can be in any genre, when you get the feeling from the writer, which you got from the little bit I just read by Simon there, that they know they've got something good. That the trick is to famously carry the, va- you know, carry the valuable vase across the room without dropping it. And, and, and Simon Garfield followed this book, The Wrestling Up, with a book called The Nation's Favourite, which is an oral history of Radio 1. And as... Um, Coincidentally, we were talking about this just a little bit earlier, and we realised that our producer, Matt Hall, was um, at Radio 1 or had just left Radio 1 when that book came out, right? Because that book was very... um, 
uh, I don't know, popular, but everyone... I mean, it was widely read, wasn't it, at the time? Yeah, well, it just came out at the exact time that um, a man called Matthew Bannister had taken over, and it was, uh, there, was a, there was also a documentary called uh, Blood on the Carpet hmm. uh, at, at the same time. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a definitely a um, quite a kind of big thing around the, around the whole discussion about Radio 1 and the BBC, and there were a lot of kind of discussions around the whole corporation at that time, but it was focused quite a lot on Radio 1 because they'd got rid of, interestingly enough, I was just trying to think, that picture of Jimmy Savile, I presume that Jimmy Savile was also in uh, The Nation's Favourite as well. Yeah, he's in both. So yeah. He's in both. <laughs> so, uh, so proceed with care. Yes, precisely. But what did people, do you know what people at Radio 1 thought of the book when it came well, certainly out? Certainly I, um, and I think probably quite a lot of people at Radio 1, um, when, I was quite kind of used to... Uh, Kind of getting albums where or where where your name was in the kind of thank you credits and whatever. So I do distinctly remember uh, getting hold of a copy of the nation, of the nation's favourite, having read the reviews and seen you know, and knowing the time that it was the period that it was talking about, and going to the to the index and issuing a silent thanks to the Lord when I realised that my name wasn't in the index. <laughs> <laughs> that there was going to be no mention of me in this book. <laughs> I, 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 my favourite story of all the many brilliant stories in the nation's favourite is the story that John Peel told to Simon Garfield. I think it's the first time that he told it on the record about going... <laughs> I'm laughing as I say ...about going to DLT's house, going to a party at DLT's house and arriving and looking around and saying, uh, Dave... Uh, where are uh, where are all the records? And Dave's saying, no, I don't have any records. No, no, dust. The dust, John. The dust. I have cassettes. I listen to those in the car. <laughs> that's, that's, that's emblematic of Radio 1 being, you know, in the hands, arguably, yeah. of people who didn't necessarily love music but love being DJs, mm. which was what that book is about, the transition from those people to the weird, next. Yeah, it's that weird thing that Tony Blackburn, who genuinely does know and mm, love mm. music, sort of morphs into, into kind of DLT and Simon Bates. And, mm. Wow, that's another one. I, have to, I'm, I was aware of it. I've never read it. It's kind of... It's fantastic. It really is. It is a great book. Right, this is the uh, this is the exciting moment in the podcast where we uh, I get to introduce our uh, our sponsor Unbound, and uh, this uh, for this particular episode we've got a uh, we've got a, a a plug coming all the way from Topanga in California from Sophie Kipner and her really 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 good first novel uh, called The Optimist. Over to you, Sophie. My name is Sophie Kipner, and I wrote a novel called The Optimist. And it all started, I was nannying my friend's little kid at the time and taking her to these gym classes. And I I just remember sitting there and not knowing what kind of story I would write or anything. And so I was sitting in this gym class watching my friend's kid and uh, the teacher was just so ridiculous. He was this inflexible, sort of stoned and out of it crazy teacher who reminded me of like a Zach Galifianakis character in a movie and I just thought it was so funny because he was just so ill-equipped to look after these children and obviously didn't want to be there and had no control of the room whatsoever and yet all these women beside me who were watching him with their kids just thought it was so cute you know because here he is (laughs) this uh, inflexible gym teacher being sweet with their kids and all of a sudden they were all 
you know, googly eyed and gushy and thought that he was just the most adorable thing ever. And and then I just started imagining uh, this crazy character who would misread his body language and uh, think that she's having some affair with him and then follow him around the room and into the bathroom and thinking that they're having this whole relationship that obviously they're not. But I just sort of went wild with this first story. And then I workshopped it and people wanted to know more about her because she was such a crazy character. And she was so much fun for me to write. It was basically sort of what I knew. And then I just exaggerated the hell out of it. And then I just started writing more and more stories based on that same protagonist. It's called The Gymnast was that first story. And that was published with, in a little literary journal for humor in the in the States. And then uh, I moved to England and continued writing and all these stories came out with the same character. And then I just developed it into a novel. So that's how it happened. Harrison Ford called me once and said, make a reservation for two and put it under the name Jonesy. I didn't understand the occasion, but when Harry wanted to do something, I'd learned not to ask questions. I said, no problem. See you soon. In room 24, I sat for an hour in a dark suite, directly in the path of one strong beam of sunlight that forced its way through a hole in the curtains. When Harry came in, instead of noticing the way my milky flesh tones and flashes of strawberry blonde hair weaved in and out of the single strand of natural light, the way my green eyes shone as if a light bulb were behind them, he asked me who I was and, why are you sitting there? I told him I thought it would be sexy, unusual, charming. He told me to put my clothes back on. What do you think this is, he said. A farm? Flushed and confused, I hastily threw my blouse over my corset and returned to the front desk from where I had come. The phone rang again. Good afternoon, I said. Hotel Bel Air, how may I help you? I lost that job shortly after I got it, but I don't allow myself to sit in regret. What a waste of time that would be. I could spend my life thinking that if I had only shaved my legs or worn a kimono instead of that crazy expensive lingerie, maybe things would have worked out differently. But what good would that do? Harry and I just weren't meant to be in love. And that's okay because I have faith in my ability to bounce back. I was in my early 20s. We all make mistakes when we're young. But I was resilient. Things break and then they heal. Although I guess that's not always true because one time I broke my elbow in a trapeze accident and I haven't been able to Chaturanga ever since. Anyway, Harry was just one story. There have been many. The Optimist by Sophie Kipner is available from all good bookshops or from the Unbound website at www.unbound.com. Backlisted listeners can get 15% off the listed price by using the special code Back off, that's B-A-C-K-O-F-F, no spaces, at the checkout on the Unbound site. Now, here are our sponsors telling you what to do. Now that's safely out of the way. I hope you, uh, hope you enjoyed it. We, uh, we're, we're going to plough on with the main, the main meat of the Something podcast. Something darker from Topanga. <laughs> Something darker. But as you say, California, very much uh, top of the mind. Uh, the, uh, the California sound of the 1970s. And Warren Zevon. So first of all, before I ask Richard the traditional question, I'm just going to say, if listeners don't know who Warren Zevon is, there's it's a very good chance they might not. Warren Zevon is the kind of sort of connoisseur's literary 70s musician. 
Yeah. Right. He never has a big hit with the exception of Werewolves of London, which is entirely up unrepresentative of what he was good at. A joke song that they wrote in five years yeah. and didn't take yeah. very seriously. And so I'll sleep when I'm dead. Before I ask you about it, Richard, we're just going to hear something from the author of I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, who is Warren Zevon's ex-wife, Crystal Zevon. And we should just hear from her how this book came about, because it's very... Important, I think, to understanding where the book is coming from. So let's just listen to that. Warren charged me with telling the whole story. Um, he asked me shortly after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer to write the book. And we talked about it on and off over the last year of his life. Uh, you know, when he first asked me, we were still getting over the shock of the fact that he was going to die. So I, there's probably nothing I would have refused him. I didn't think very hard about what that meant but um, as the year went on he'd talk about things that it was important that he have included and then a week before he died he called me and said you're going to do this thing right and I said well I guess so Warren and he said well you know if you do it you've got to tell the whole truth even the awful ugly parts because that's the excitable boy who wrote them excitable songs uh, those were his exact words. And I said, I, you know, Warren, I don't think I know what the whole truth is. And he laughed. And he laughed in a way that I hadn't heard him laugh in a while because he'd been pretty sick. And uh, he said, oh, you'll find out. Um, and I did. <laughs> there's, there's some understatement, right? So, Richard, when did you first run into this book or when did you first hear of or hear Warren Zevon? Well, the, the fan part of it, uh, um, as a, a teenager, I remember uh, a, a mate of mine who played guitar in a band gave me uh, Sentimental Hygiene, which was a, an album of it in 1987, and said, you've got to hear this. And it was interesting because um, R.E.M. Uh, were basically his backup band on that record. And immediately I uh, heard this amazing voice, this erudite, sardonic character, and it was a great record. And uh, sure uh, um, he, I was living in Belfast at the time. He played live uh, the following year, and, and after that, I just wanted to, every record of his. I looked for keenly, as, as hard as they were to find, because he was not a, you know, not a household name by any means. Around right about in the mid '90s, uh, in, in what was for me the early age of the internet, there was a wonderful woman in Texas called Diane Berger who ran a, a fan website about Zivona, and we connected. And I, I, I would write the occasional fan column, and Diane would send me live tapes because she had this amazing collection of of Zevon stuff. So that was a lovely um, friendship and a shared enthusiasm. Then, funnily enough, when I was in Los Angeles doing my book with Sean Penn uh, in around 2002, I met uh, Crystal Zevon, uh, who was, uh, we had a mutual friend, that friend being the guy whose couch I would sleep on in Los Angeles. So we, we had dinner, and, uh, and it was an interesting thing for me to meet her, obviously. And then, weirdly enough, I, I found myself at a party, which is pictured in, in, in the book, which was the engagement party for Zevon's daughter, Ariel where uh, the, the great man himself was there. Uh, little did I know he'd been, he uh, knew his diagnosis. And um, it was the night he, he first took a drink, uh, having not had one in 17 years. So I mean, I mean that, that much of a little window into the, into the, the, the story when, when I heard that Crystal was doing the book and uh, I was obviously, couldn't wait for it and I certainly thought she did a, a bang up job. Yeah. I would just like to say something before... And we were not going to spend uh, the next however long talking about how much we love Warren Zevon, although three of us do. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, so I read this book about 10 years ago. Uh, it got really good reviews when it came out. It's very interesting that I was told when I was doing the prep for this episode that it was published by Dan Halpern at Echo in the States. No UK publisher would pick it up. Interesting. Because Zeron clearly was not perceived as sufficiently, sufficiently popular. And yet, uh, you'd have to say, it is a classic of the genre. I yeah, think. well, you'd not read it before, no, had you? I had. I was a, sort of vaguely aware of it. It was one of, you know, when people talk about great rock classics, this came up. And because I wasn't really like most, I suppose most English fans, I, I, I knew that one song. I had a vague notion that he'd written with other people. But once you kind of uncover that, that's been the great thing. I mean, listening to a lot of his music over the last fortnight, and then the book itself is such a, it's such a brave, and 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 kind of it's a remorseless tale of 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 a, of a very complicated, not altogether happy life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's as good a portrait of the, the the strange alchemy that produces. Not just music, but any kind of any. I think it's any kind of art. I mean, if you, it reminded me in bits, you know, that that of the, you know, the letters of Van Gogh to his brother Theo. With in terms of the portrait of uh, that's very different because it's not. Although Warren's voice is through the book, but you think, how does anyone actually survive at this level of intensity? It's the it's the one, it's surely the least fl- flattering authorized yes. biography ever published isn't it I mean it's I mean, we're so talking, warts and all is, a, is too small a, a too mere a phrase to describe and, and we should say that I, I don't think this book is for everyone I agree with you John I think as a portrait of what, what let's it? call it artistic temperament it is it, it's hard to beat and also I think as, a, as an example but, what Crystal Zivon has done as an oral history as a, as, a, as a sort of a work within a genre what she's done I think is, is it's I think beautifully constructed in terms of, you know, laying one voice against another. Yeah, just to come back, is it, is it the harshest uh, of all? Well, um, um, Martin Amos, in, in reviewing uh, Peter Manso's Mail of His Life and Times, called it the most exhaustive character assassination in the history of letters. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet M- M- Mailer had blessed the book uh, and, and was yeah, alive yeah. and well. So uh, the, 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 you do tend to go that way if, if you're going to go what's and all. Do, do um, you think that... Zivon would have liked the book, given how thin-skinned he was. No, I, I think, uh, like all of us, he would have, he was thinking that the the stories of his dirty life and times w- wouldn't look so harsh on the page. Um, but I think he, he, the man, had a very well-turned sense of his own perversity. I think, you know, he, and a you know, sense of the secret badness of the world, if you like. Um, uh, we were chatting earlier about, about how he, even at the death he was crafting a, a career platform yeah. for himself out of his cancer. So I think he... Um, I mean, yeah, in, it, in no sense does he come out of it as a as likeable. But what you come out of it is, a, is I came out of it with a strange sense of affection towards him and, and a much greater understanding. Uh, I mean, the, the, the case for the prosecution, and forgive me if I'm paraphrasing you here, Matt, would be <laughs> he's a self-indulgent, you know, middle, 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 talented American rock star who beat up his wife and had addiction problems, um, and you know probably won't be remembered for, for much else other than that one song. So what's what's the big deal? Aren't we all just enabling by by kind of trying to find a, a reasons to be sympathetic to this monstrous uh, monstrous ego for all the problems that he had, his OCD and his you know why bother? 
Is that a that, fair? Uh, is that a fair summation of your views? <laughs> and yet, and yet, <laughs> the interesting thing I found was that I thought the, what she does is she obviously no one suffered more at his hands than Crystal. I think possibly his children. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd go with them too actually. Yeah. But you know somehow they were there. It's very moving. The final, the the beginning of the book, which starts with his death, and then the final. Um, no spoilers there because obviously he's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, I think it is. I found it. I did find it moving, and I found I I just found it fascinating that you could, you know, to find sympathy for somebody who has behaved this badly and this self-indulgently and this irrationally is is difficult. But I'm I'm just want to give you a couple of quotes here to that seem to me uh, they're both very short, but they they they're from different people who work with Zivon. And I think if you are, like, if you've worked in with artists or writers, or you are an artist or a writer, you will recognise both sides of this, whether you have chronic substance abuse problems or not. This is a guy called Duncan Aldrich, who was Zevon's driver and his roadie. He's talking about the end of their relationship in about 1996. He says this: driving around. No matter what he, Warren, what Warren would look at or what would be happening, he'd just spew discomfort and hate, and it was driving me crazy to the point where at the end of the tour I said, this is not a criticism at all, but maybe this will help you. And I gave him the book of the Tao, and I said goodbye. (laughs) He ended up thinking I hated him or something, but I just didn't want to give an opinion on all the shit that was going down, and it was too hard to be around. I really didn't say anything. After that, he called by mistake once. I had a couple emails with him in the last year or so, but that was the end. I was with him for 12 years, and I know for a fact that was the longest relationship he ever had. You know, it, it's, it's someone who found, found it incredibly difficult to feel secure with other people, be they in long-term relationships or working relationships. Uh, and then at the same time, there's this great quote from a guy called Noah Schneider who was his sound engineer and was his engineer when they were doing this final album The Wind when he knew he was dying which I really I this really sticks with me as a as a a piece of self-knowledge which we could all um, apply Noah Schneider says one time when we just started recording The Wind Warren could tell something was weird with me. He says, what's the deal with you today? I said, you've got cameras following you. There are movie stars stopping by. It just seems weird how a year ago it was just me and you doing a record together in your apartment. I wanted to say how all of a sudden people were jumping on the bandwagon and I was the guy who'd been there all along. Whatever. It wasn't really true, but it's how I felt at that moment. What, what he said was, oh, I see. It's an ego thing. <laughs> I'm stumbling all over myself. No, no, it's not about my ego. One goes, it's all right. It's okay if it's about your ego. Sometimes it's got to be about your ego. Just know that it is. Yeah. I use that all the time. And, you know, next time I uh, go crazy at festival organiser for putting red M&Ms in my bowl, I, <laughs> so it's ego, but I know it's ego. You know? That's a nice thing towards the end of the book. Um, but... Uh, Michael Ironside wrote, which is, Warren was very proud, proud of his life, which is a pretty extraordinary statement. I like that. There's that Nelson Mandela thing where he says, we're not afraid of our darkness. What we're afraid of is our lightness. 
Our job isn't to turn our bulb down to make the person next to us more comfortable. Our job is to turn our bulb up and give the person, next person permission to do the same. Warren did that, which seems to me mm. kind of gets close to the, the truth. Is that, um, although I'm not sure he would, you, would say, you could say that he was proud of his life. I think he, he seemed to me that he was racked with guilt about his kids. But he didn't... He was a survivor, although he died young. I mean, he, he survived what most, mo- most people mm. would have been snuffed out. As he said, the, great, the great quote is, I got to have Jim Morrison's life a whole lot longer than he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, as a, speaking of a fan of his, I mean, I think his status as a songwriter is, is copper-bottomed. Yeah. There's a live recording of Bruce Springsteen playing his song, My Rides Here. It was, it was played on the night that uh, Zeevan had died. He said, I want to say goodbye to my friend Warren. He's one of the great American songwriters. And well, I happen to think that too, but I'll, I'll, I'll take Springsteen's opinion as, as the one that <laughs> uh, sh- should stand. But I mean, said all of that, I mean, I read, I've never felt the same about Zevon since this book. It's, it's one of those things where he, he wasn't the man I thought he was. Yeah. It doesn't change the work one bit, but some of the behavior just I find very tough to take. I just want to read this bit, a, a compilation of bits about Zevon's behavior towards his uh, now separated wife, Crystal, and, and their daughter, uh, Ariel. And the first voice is Crystal's dad, Zeevan's father-in-law. There were a number of occasions where I probably should have decked Warren, but Ariel's third birthday party was the closest I came. I was sitting in a lawn chair, and Warren and some other men were on their knees reading the assembly instructions for a swing set. Ariel hadn't seen her daddy since he'd moved out several months before, which had to be confusing for her since he'd worked at home and always been around since she was born. The minute he arrived, she left the kid she was playing with and never took her eyes off her daddy. He was down on his knees and she ran over with her arms open wide, wanting a hug. He saw her coming and put out his hand to stop her. It knocked her down, but he didn't even seem to notice. He ignored her. I will never forget that little girl standing up and brushing herself off, holding back her tears. I was out of my chair, livid. Quite a big lesson for a little girl. And then Crystal takes up the story the next day. At my request, Warren told Ariel he wouldn't be coming home anymore. And he went inside and started stuffing stuff into paper bags. The party was still going on, but he'd done his duty and he was clearing out. Warren said, Kim, his girlfriend Kim, and I would like to pick Ariel up tomorrow and have our own birthday celebration with her. I agreed, even though I knew he was drinking. They were supposed to pick her up for lunch the next day, and they were about three hours late. I still have this hauntingly beautiful black and white photo of Ariel, all dressed up for her daddy, sitting on this big boulder in front of our house, waiting she stayed there for a full two hours, refusing to come inside. I find that very plaintive uh, as the father of daughters. Yeah. And when you read the book from a technical standpoint, as someone who's put these books together as a writer and an editor, do you, what do you think the challenges were when putting this together? Well, you, you've got to go to everybody. And, and this is, I mean, John alluded to this before, it's a good point. Memory is a real problem with these books. Uh, you, you, you're, you're relying on your subjects. They've got to say it. You can't write it. Yeah. Um, and, and moreover, I, mean, I, I found this doing my books. You, you, you ask people questions, and, and they know that you already know the answer. And you said, I know, I know. I just need you to tell the story. <laughs> I mean, what I, yeah. I did, Sean Penn, who one of the best people to talk to was Bono of, of you too. He said, I think I know what you want here. You, you want you didn't want information. You want me to tell your stories that have a shape to them, right? I said, you've got it. <laughs> um, um, and, and that's what Crystal did. She, she obviously had the advantage of, of the life, you know, she, uh, and she had the, those doors open. I mean, she said very charmingly, she, you know, she didn't talk to Bob Dylan because she knew that Dylan wasn't going to say anything on tape that would be any use. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I think what the book is brilliant uh, about the era where most of its uh, uh, witnesses knew and did their best, which is the 70s. I agree, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a, that's a gilded cultural era. And in, in that place, you find out where, where the songs come from. What I liked about it is, you know, because I, I kind of like, unlike you, Matt, Californian rock of the 1970s, I, I'm sort of... I like the troubadour and all that. And there's great stories of, you know, Elton John turning up and playing the troubadour and all, all those... But I felt Zevon was a bit of a missing link for me between you know, yeah, Jack's, yeah. the Jackson brand, the sort of that you've got the Joni um, uh, James Taylor kind of end, and then you've got the Eagles, and then you've got Jackson Brown, and I sort of felt Zevon was Zevon was kind of like well, he a, 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 you know he, he has the, the blessing the, the Randy Newman of that scene. He has he the blessing dark, and the curse complex. of being the singer songwriter singer songwriters. Yeah. Exactly. Singer-songwriter, singer-songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. But he was also, I mean, it's important. One of the things that comes out of the book, he, he, he met, he, he went and hung out with Stravinsky when he was a kid. I mean, it's pretty, and he was classically trained. I mean, brilliant musician. Yeah. Uh, and that's what everybody, you know, everybody said. Mm. He, was, he knew more, he, he, sort of genius level. I think part of the problem, you can sort of see without speculating, his OCD, he had, he obviously probably mm, was we're on some come kind of that. spectrum kind of... You know, he was he he, he had difficulty with empathy, <laughs> uh, but he was a, he was a kind of a genius, and he read. He was a, he was the well, most. We we should say one of the things that a lot of his mates were writers. Yeah, the Richard was alluding to that he is a very. Uh, his friends were writers. He wrote songs with, as you were saying, Paul Muldoon, but he also wrote songs with Thomas McGuane and Carl Hyerson. He was friends with Hunter Thompson, John Mitch Albom, Stephen King. You know, he preferred hanging out with writers and he loved books and he loved reading in fact we have a a, a short quote from uh, near the end of his life uh, which for copyright reasons is under the fair use limit of 30 seconds so um, but we just have this from from Zeeman. so let's hear warren's voice now i have been reading it all lately since my diagnosis you know my candy boy Schopenhauer said, we love to buy books because we believe we're buying the time to read them. Isn't that grand? <laughs> Isn't that grand? It's also worth noting that when you read the book, you realise he's absolutely loaded when he, when he um, yeah. on, on, on morphine and uh, booze yeah, he when he recorded that, right? Whiskey and liquid yeah. morphine. Hell, who wouldn't? So I, I'd just like to, everyone, there's one anecdote in this book that I think everyone who reads this book n- never forgets it. And I, I want to share it with people because it's so great. So when Zevon cleaned up, he was, he was sober for 17 years. And they say that what happened to him from the early 80s, I think that's right, isn't it? Early 80s to the, to the, to the mid-90s, is that his OCD really took off and that maybe the drugs and alcohol had been masking it but it was it became a big it became a big problem well, for him right it's addictive yeah. behavior isn't it anyway so this is somebody talking about one of the ways in which ocd manifested itself this is uh, stuart this is stuart a guy called stuart ross warren was buying only one shirt Calvin Klein grey extra-large T-shirts. He was buying them in every city. Every time there was a store that sold that exact T-shirt, he would go in and buy them. I figured that he was acting like a rock star and he wore them once and threw them away. No idea. Well, 
New Year's Day 1991, we're in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We have the night off and we're playing on January the 2nd. On January the 1st, he calls me. Is there anything to do? So we rented a car and drove to a mall. He loved to shop more than any heterosexual man alive. We go into a department store and he immediately starts buying grey Calvin Klein t-shirts. He's flipping through the rack and they're all the same size, all the same colour, but he flipped two or three, take that one, flip another, take that one. I don't know how he made his decisions, but some were lucky shirts and some were not lucky shirts. So he buys five or six of these. Later, we're walking to the car, and he notices another department store on the other side of the mall. He says, we haven't gone there yet. I said, why should we go there? He says, to get Calvin Klein T-shirts. I said, Warren, you just got six of them. He says, but not from that store. I said, what does it matter what store they come from? He said, it matters to me. I said, Warren, once you take them out of the package, you don't know what store they came from. And he said, and I'll never forget this, I don't take them out of the package. What do you mean you don't take them out of the package? He said, look, you collect fountain pens, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, I collect grey Calvin Klein T-shirts. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? Every one of my fountain pens is different. All your T-shirts are the same. And he said, the value is to the collector. I said, that's wrong. The value is to the marketplace, and every one of your T-shirts is identical. Until this time, I thought he was just wearing them and throwing them away because he didn't want to do laundry. But no, he had more grey Calvin Klein T-shirts in their packages than Calvin Klein had. Years later, we're having lunch, and he says, guess what? They don't make the same grey Calvin Klein T-shirts now. They're completely different. They're made in Malaysia now. He said, you laughed at me when I bought all those shirts. Now I have the only good grey Calvin Klein T-shirts in existence. Footnote... When Warren died, his T-shirts, still bagged, were distributed among family and friends who wear them still. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Sweet. You know that great line at the end of uh, Raging Bull, where the quotes, quotes from the Gospel, I say, I do not know if he's a good man. All I know, you know is that <laughs> yeah, I once was blind and now I see. He was some kind of a man. <laughs> what does it matter what he's saying about people? Anyone, anyway. Well, what a... What, Perfect note on which to end uh, uh, this 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 uh, fantastic um, discussion. I've enjoyed hugely. Um, thanks to our guest Richard T. Kelly and our producer Matt Hall. Our extensive or uh, archive, now forty-five shows long, is available on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/forward/slash/backlistedpod, and we're on Twitter and Facebook. So come and say hello. And uh, might we ask if you've enjoyed the show? It'd be great if you could leave us five star only, please. <laughs> Reviews on iTunes. Thank you for listening. See you in a fortnight. Goodbye. Enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> you can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.